Welcome to The Prestige, all about films, filmmaking and film theory. Each week we pick a movie, review it, talk about it and discuss some of the ideas and themes that it throws up. And as always we end the show with our recommendations for further reading, further watching inspired by this week's film. But before we kick off, as ever, a quick catch up on what else we've been watching. So Rob? Not a lot in terms of films I must say in the, in the last week. Uh, the things I have dipped into... Um, to watch, but mostly been TV this week. So we've seen the return of Broadchurch, uh, which I'm a big fan of. I finished up Westworld, which turned out to be a brilliant TV show. And um, we're diving into How to Get Away with Murder, which is a uh, a Shondaland production from uh, Shonda Rhimes. So yeah, all good TV shows. Nothing revolutionary right about. Probably Westworld's best best of the three. Right. Um, but yeah, no movies to talk of. Uh, but you, Sam, is Broadchurch the one with David Tennant in? It is, yes. Is it good? Hmm. <laughs> I will say that the first season's very good. Right. The second season wasn't quite as good, but so far the third season is shaping up to be better. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, the first season was very, very good. So this week, um. I've only had one film of note to talk about, um, and it was the film, the animation from last year, The Secret Life of Pets. Now this is, um, well, it's it's an animated kids film, basically. Um, mm-hmm. It's fairly short, it's about an hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes, um, and it's not really anything to write home about, but... There are, I mean, it it is probably as good as as good as it could be. It's a really slickly put together. It's got Eric Stone Street in it from Modern Family. It's got Stephen Coogan in it. It's got Ellie Kemper from um, Unbreakable Kim Schmidt. Um, and yeah, every everyone does good work. Um, it's not an amazing story, but they do the best with it they can. Uh, on the scale of animated films, it's no Toy Story, but then not many things are. No, Toy Story is something something in itself, isn't it, really? Indeed, yeah. So that's why I've been watching this. Excellent, excellent. So Sam, what have you been watching for the show? For the show? Right, this week is Before Midnight. Oh, we say we were going to stop. They wanted to see the ruins. Yeah, but should we wake them up? I know. You know what, let's do, on our way back to the airport, we can catch them. Hmm? You know we won't. Yeah, I'm probably not. Okay. And how did you two meet? We met about 18 years ago. We kind of, sort of, fell in love. And a decade later, we ran into each other. No, no, no. You wrote a book, and I read about it, and went to look for it. It's pretty romantic. If we were meeting for the first time today on a train, would you start talking to me? Would you ask me to get off the train with you? Before Midnight is the third film in Richard Linklater's Before trilogy, and he has it ruled out a return to the series um, and it's another one in which nine years have passed since the previous instalment both in real time and in the narrative of the movies as it opens Jesse's saying goodbye to his son whom we we learned about in the last film and it quickly transpires that Jesse and his then wife have separated uh, and he is now living in France. Um, 
his son had joined him and his his new family in Greece and they spend the summer holiday in a writer's retreat in Greece and it turns out that this new family is unsurprisingly headed by Celine. Uh, Jesse has broken things off rather acrimoniously with the mother of Hank, his son, and um, Hank has been spending the summer with his dad and Celine and their two young daughters, and there is a very nice reveal quite close to the beginning um, when the camera pulls back and you see the sleeping daughters in the back car and you instantly know a lot more about the life that they've built together mm. and it's uh, as you'd expect from the other films it's meandering in places there's lots of talking there's lots of lovely outdoor shots uh, and then it sort of falls into two halves because the second half is something extraordinary and it becomes a very interesting psychological uh, portrait of, of these two characters and this, this idea of a relationship that's built up over the course of the first two films. So, Rob, your thoughts? Um, in many ways, I think this was the most interesting of the three films. Because looking back at... Having watched this film, looking back at the other two films, the first two films essentially are the same thing. It's about two people meeting and kind of falling in love. The first one's a very young, very passionate love. The second one's about a slightly older, slightly more reserved and experienced love. This is a very different film. This is, it doesn't, doesn't explore the same territories. But I'm very interested in the fact that it deals with the, the what happens next question. Like, what happens once you've fallen in love and you've made the choices what happens and things like you know it kind of investigates some of those traditional rom-com tropes you know he's got a wife and kid but he meets the love of his life and it's all beautiful and romantic but then that probably means that his current wife when he leaves her for the the french woman will hate him mm. like he has to live for the fact that he has a son with a woman that hates him how how does that how do you affect that and what happens with when you have this woman who you've known for basically, you know, 13 hours in total in your entire life, how do you settle down with her? How 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 does it? And how does the formation of your relationship in this intense rom-com romantic film way, this kind of very storybook in many ways romance, what happens next? How do you deal with that in the real world? Mm. I think that... I think that sometimes the film sought to be provocative in a way that didn't need to be. Apparently um, some of the stuff in the second half of the film. Yeah. And I think that the film was certainly better for the earlier scenes in which they are dealing with other people who aren't um, each other. I think it was nice to see that. And I'm glad we did move... I was a bit worried about watching it that we were going to go into like a more of a family drama situation. Mm. Um but I do think the film also, once again, like we talked about with last week, does some great work textually investigating the previous film. He, he wrote a book about the second experience. Yes. Um, and he's totally discussing it with writers. And he's discussing the idea of, um, once again, what's kind of memory and remembrance and all that kind of thing. And I think that they, they do some kind of great work in looking at that. The dinner scene in which they discuss love and what love is and the different 
sort of versions of love that everyone on the table deals with. Um, you still, once again, that they're, they're talking about the film within the film. Yes, I think there was. Um, well, the, the, there's a point in in that. I suppose about forty minutes into the film, you have Celine and Jesse taking a walk, and they they comment on how long it's been, and um, Celine talks about measuring things by the daughters' lives. And she actually makes explicit reference to a film, and so you see, you see the culmination of this, um, this process of, of being sort of meta filmic is to, actually call attention to a film within this film. Mm. Um, I, th- yeah, I, I'm, I wasn't sure what to make of this film. It was, um, it was very interesting. I can't, I mean, it's, it's testament to it that I haven't really, I mean, I've gone for some actor-led recommendations. I can't really think of anything tonally that sprang to mind for me um, because it feels such a diverse film. It felt like you said at the beginning it was sort of maybe moving into a family drama right at the beginning and then it was good that it didn't. And then you have that long involved scene sitting around the table, which the dinner scene, I, I think that's that's one of the best scenes in the film. And then you have the sort of the intense scenes between Jesse and Celine later on in the hotel. And it just sort of sort of jumps around. So it wasn't I was never really sure what this film was. Mm. And I like that. Um I did I pick up on this idea of it being sort of unnecessary that you're talking about. They did it was it was brutal. The last twenty minutes, they were they were being really horrible to each other, and you could you could see how it was justified to a certain extent on on each side. But I mean, he. he you could see that if you're criticising him, then you'd say, well, he's just been acting like a teenager and he's been thinking selfishly and that's what's structured these decisions. And then if you criticise her, well, then she has blown something out of all proportion. He was just a bit sad seeing his son off at the airport and she makes it into this huge life-fracturing thing. And I just thought I, I thought it was just a bit unnecessary how how dramatic the two of them were, how overblown the two of them were. Yeah, I I, I mean, I suppose listening to the, the, getting into the meat of it, the row that that, that features the last film, and I did enjoy from a sort of a story point of view that the up and ending of the traditional romantic coming together, but I almost entirely sided with him. Mm. I I couldn't. I couldn't see her side of the row. Um, I thought she was just being thoroughly unpleasant as a partner, um, and I understand that you know in the idea that there is a truth behind this, and you know she's a carefree um, woman doing living her own life, um, but it just felt like she was just being unpleasant, mm. and I didn't buy into why he fought for her. But I suppose the idea that they're trying to present is that love is love. Mm. Um, and then that's what you're kind of uh, 
seeking and that's what everyone he says you know i know you're crazy but i love you anyway yeah um but i do think well sorry to say unnecessary i think that the revelations that both of them had cheated on each other um at various points seemed unnecessary um and it just seemed to kind of it seemed like I felt the hand of the script writers there. I mean, I know it is the three of them, but it felt like I, I saw that. Like the, you're trying to complicate the matters here. You're trying to make this a row where, as you say, you can see both sides. I didn't. I just saw her being unpleasant. Mm. Um. So it was. Uh, yeah, that's kind, of, that's kind of where I felt with it. That, that I just didn't. I don't know. It felt more contrived than the previous two films, um, and I enjoy. I mean, it felt. I don't know. I felt like how to say this. I felt like rather than just saying, you know, this is a lovely world, lovely people, let's go live in it again. They felt they had to do something different with the third film, and we've discussed this in the past talking about franchises. And you want to find that fine line between reinvention and change for the sake of change. Mm. And this, to me felt like change they could change it didn't feel like the natural extension there were things like the little moment when the um clerk gets her to sign the book and she's like well it's not really me in the book um and but signs it anyway like that's like a true moment and it felt like there were like there were ways to do these kind of slight i put this it's like growing resentment and this growing spark between the two of them without revolving into a deep yelling row mm. um which I mean, it just didn't seem to fit with the characters we'd seen in the last two films as much. No. Um, so I enjoyed it. I think it, I, I say you say it is a it is a filmic achievement, and I was certainly riveted during the row. But taking a step back, I think it is the lesser of the three films. Yes, I think, and I think part of that is um back to this idea that you're not really sure why he fights for her and I would agree with you actually I was I was I was searching as I was talking about it I was trying to side with her because I know it would be horrible of me as a critic to side against a woman in that situation it's a horribly masculine thing to do so it was something that I wanted to try and go against but you're right there is something fundamental about the fact that she she's just a bit crazy as he yeah says. yeah she just seemed i suppose it felt like the early reaction she had to the you know to the, the chicago thing i was like okay well something's going on there something's actually going on there mm. and it isn't about chicago but that's what it's being about um but there wasn't the reveal in which they go actually this is really about this yeah, it just felt like they went. Actually, well, it's about that, and also everything else is being annoying. And it felt like they contrived to bring up every round they've ever had in a half hour segment. And you now I've been with my my wife for thirteen years now. You've been with your partner for many years as well, and we have our rows, but we rarely have one row that brings up every issue we have in the entire relationship in one half an hour segment. Mm. And that's where I think the contrivedness comes from. It. Um, but say that, that that's the last negative thing I want to say. But I think it, it, there are some interesting things to talk about it in terms of the in its place in the three films. Um, but I don't, yeah, I, I wasn't as sold on this one as I was previously. Hmm. Something I did want to think about then is 
this idea of well you said change for change's sake the idea of change is particularly important to this film and so we're moving away from being negative about it but the idea that these characters have fundamentally changed and mm. that seems to me what this narrative is about what these these three films are about is the change is the growth of these two figures and it's when you saw it in the first two films was sort of about Celine being in charge essentially and Jesse sort of trying to get a handle on her and it, it felt very much like she was she was she she was on top of that power dynamic and mm. then it's very revealing that you get that dinner scene where she says well I had to I had to act up in order to um, show show myself as subservient to him and you see the row at the end that she's been she's always been really resentful of that act so you look back and you think well there was actually real bitterness and real pain behind what she says in jest at the dinner table that she really hates being being seen as less than him and it was kind of in the first, well, certainly the first film, and then in the second film, he was just a sort of jobbing writer, and mm. she could she worked for a for a multinational, she worked for a charity, and she could feel morally superior to him. It seems very much in this first, this third film, there's been a change, and suddenly he is the one with the power in this relationship, and she is. That that's what about you said you you weren't sure you, you you just knew that it wasn't about Chicago this row. It feels like what this realm is about, what this film is about, is the fact that they have changed and suddenly he is in the dominant position. Ah, I see what you're saying. So I suppose the I suppose you, you see in the earlier film she had her own thing going on, mm. and he felt like the the little boy. Yes. kind of running around yeah. after her um, and that's you know it's it's that kind of I suppose that the idea that in motherhood that women lose their identity and they lose their agency and by her having to face giving up her job um, and, and the loss of this wind turbine production, that she's lost her agency as a woman she's lost her agency as a professional and clearly she's lost her sort of her sexual agency in in their um in their relationship and it doesn't help that obviously they're away on a righteous retreat for him mm. and the conversations around around his family and what he needs i suppose i did I, I didn't get that from the film itself i felt like the it should have led us somewhere mm. and i know like, uh, maybe i'm being presumptive mm. thinking that based on the previous pre- two previous films which didn't really have that kind of narrative act but it felt this film felt far closer to a normal narrative structure, and that they should have been building to some giant, some reveal or some sort of moment. Um, but instead, we revealed in moment that this is just a row, and then they just kind of make up at the end. And I get the reality of that. I understand the idea that if you do have a row, most of the time you just kind of make up, mm. or you just kind of you just kind of you bury it all back down inside and you move on with the idea that you love each other. Um, and that bit I kind of get. And I get the idea that this is this is real life. So you don't get to just have a storming round and quit um, our relationship. But I just didn't buy the round in the first place. It didn't felt like they 
they didn't reveal anything about any of the characters to me. It was once again an interesting exercise in fan fiction in moving them forward nine years, mm. but I didn't get any reveals about the characters. No. Um, but I did. I did enjoy the way in which they took some of the previous tropes of the films and brought them back. I did enjoy that a lot, and the, the throwback and the, the placing of it within this franchise. And I think that, that, that they kind of toyed with you a little bit about that. Because I think the, the three things that, if I'm going to just talk about quickly, that I really notice over the three films. Mm. One is the lack of sex. Two is the uh, we, the montage we talked about in the last two films. And three, there's this re- recurring visual motif or visual scene of the two of them together falling in love but not talking mm. um, and I'll do those in, in, in turn A, in the first film we don't know if they had sex um, it turns out they did but we never saw it second film they had sex, in the third film you felt here like they were building towards it and certainly for a while it felt very tender and romantic but obviously the row ups and it never happens Third, secondly, the montage, obviously one and two, very obvious. Third, here it was almost hidden, I think. It was hidden at the end of the row in which Jesse's sitting alone in the in the hotel room. He looks around and you have these shots of the room yes. in which you see the places where they've just been back and forth in for the last half an hour. Mm. And you almost you get you see him thinking the row through again. And it, he relives yeah, that moment. And it finishes up with her tea. Yes. And that's a sim- yeah, yes, yeah. Um and, and so it was kind of hidden that montage moment, but it was there again. Mm. And the third one is this moment when they don't talk to each other. First film it was in the listening booth. Um, in which they sort of listen to each other and they clean them falling in love but not talking. I must say to my to my eternal shame, I can't remember where it is in the second film. But there is a scene where they're together stood but not actually talking. Maybe back of the car possibly with the um uh, driver, there's a moment which they're together and they're kind of like looking at each other and not looking at each other and kind of romantically finding each other. Mm. Um, and that film, it feels kind of once again slightly hidden, but that is the, almost the very last in the film in which they're kind of slowly making up on on the um, pier front. He's come down, he's done a little pitch about time travel, and she she's kind of gone, look, I mean it, I don't love you anymore. And they have this moment, where they're just going kind to of sit there in contemplation of that and what happens now. And then she goes, so tell me about the time machine. And that's her kind of bringing him back into the fold. So once again, you get this moment of the two of them together in silence in which they, their words and their actions can't ruin it. They're just together, soul to soul. That's when they reconnect. And she takes that moment of silence to fall in love with him again. Mm. I thought that that was just the most beautiful moment when she said, I mean, after what was a really ugly 20 minutes I mean really horribly brutal that moment where she says so tell me about this time machine is like it just says everything it says sorry and I love you and let's try again and haven't the past 18 years been great and mm. I'm really angry still it just says everything in in that one sentence I suppose that's where in, in case compared to the other two films this film felt more of a narrative loop um, than others, but I suppose that's it. Like there isn't another story here now, and I, I, I know that he talked about that. But the idea that these characters have aged, they've come into what's probably going to be their life now. 
that a a a a fourth film would require some sort of big change again. So either it'd be a divorce or a death or something like that. Like, and that feels more contrived. But I like that this film has kind of brought the idea of age into this and like what happens next and the, the living together forever kind of thing. There's a lot of talk of them being together for another fifty six years. Mm. And it's it's a it feel like this film's putting it to bed, and I hope they do with that. Yes, I I hope so as well. I hope there's not a fourth film, because it, as you said, there's there's lots of talk about them aging together, but also, like it, it ends with that um the the scene about Jesse and the eighty year old Celine. So they've in, incorporated old age into this into this. Mm. This whole this whole narrative in the third film, so I think it would it would be contrived and it would be a mistake to go back to it. No, I I can only agree. I think that the film is stronger for ending where it does, because if if the point of this film is the idea of this cyclical nature of their lives, that the first two films are this repeating motif, the repeating history of meeting and falling in love, meeting and falling in love. Surely this film now establishes this is the new routine. Mm. That they they're not going to f- fall apart and fall in love, but they are. They're, they're, they're going to drift apart and come together, and that's their way. But this is. But once you get married and once you settle with someone, this is how you live that story again, by having a row and coming back together. Another film wouldn't do anything more for this world. I think. I think you need to leave it now and go. Yeah, this is you know the the, the repeating history of Jesse and um, Celine has settled into this now. Mm. Yeah. Um, one thing I did want to mention very briefly before we finish is that, I mean, this is they they say South Peloponnese, and one of them um, talks about Crete and calls to mind the Minotaur, and there is a moment where in the middle of this writer's retreat they are focusing on this this centuries old story and the story is about a monster in the middle of something and it feels like maybe that's what this exploration is about so Ariadne moving into the labyrinth and dealing with the Minotaur is kind of I'm, I haven't really thought about it, it deeply enough but it's it's one or both of these characters descending into the middle of their relationship and finding mm. something monstrous and yet coming out of it. Well, I think that's, you know, it, it's... I suppose that's where the truth this film finds is that almost every relationship in the world, and, you know, this isn't me... It has some things you just don't talk about. Mm. Maybe it's the fact that, you know, you just hate your father-in-law or... You don't talk about the fact that you know you fell apart for a couple of years when you were together. You know, that there'll be something that you just don't talk about, um, and that's that's the nature of relationships, the nature of friendships. You know, um, every relationship in the world, be it platern- uh, paternal, what's paternal, be it platonic, be it romantic, um, be it paternal, um, has things you just you put in a box and you move on. Mm. And as you say, that the idea of this Minotaur myth, that the two of them through this row, they dive into the monsters at the centre of the things they can talk about. Mm. And then they once again lock them away and go back to being in the world. But I, I think you you get it right there that there's a, a a feeling of diving into the maze of their relationship to find the monster at the centre of it. Mm. Um, 
I think for me, I didn't think that they found a monster. They just found a maze of pain. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's the real what's going on. That there isn't a monster, it's just life. Yeah. Well then, Rob, do you have any recommendations for us? As I do, I do. One thematic and one slightly esoteric, but I'll go through it. Mm. So my first one is a thematic one and this is a film I'm sure I've I've uh, repped a fauna show but I can't remember when and that is the 2009 film from Mark Webb 500 Days of Summer now this is a it's pitched as a romantic comedy but it's very much about the reality of falling in love and whereas the before trilogy is about a very, a very, very real. This is very surreal and very um, filmic in its kind of cinematic and its way of dealing with it. But it deals with the same kind of actually, rom coms aren't real. This is real, um, and how that actually plays out, and the idea that maybe the hero of your film isn't a hero, and they aren't a good person, or they aren't the person who did things right. They weren't hard done by it or whatever. But it felt that same kind of world of how how romance really works so yeah mm. fun is summer um it's no it's got uh jason gordon levitt and zoe Deschanel, so you know it's funny and pretty but also working out so my second recommendation i say is this one that's slightly esoteric um so you'll follow me along here so in uh the before midnight they are staying at the house of clearly a patron of of writing uh, by the name i believe of patrick patrick is played by walter latterly Oh god! <laughs> you've you've been as esoteric as I have, I suspect. So Walter Lassley <laughs> isn't really an actor. Um, Walter Lassley is a cinematographer by trade. Uh, has worked as a cinematographer many years in, in British, um, and mostly in the British sort of kitchen sink drama of of the late fifties and the early sixties. Um, he did films like Tom Jones. He did films uh, like Zorba the Greek and Taste of Honey. Um, but the film that I want to um, highlight of his, as a cinematographer, not as an actor here, um, is The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. It's a, a well-known short story, um, and it's a 1962 film uh, starring uh, Tom Courtney in the main role. Um and Michael Redgrave as a sort of a supporting role, and essentially it's about a uh, a young man sent to a reform uh, reformatory, I suppose, for for wayward children, and him coming to terms with his place as a working class rebel, um, his family history, and what running and long distance running means to him. Um, it's very beautiful looking but it's very much in that kind of British kitchen sink drama of, of the 60s um, but yeah it, it is a very very good film and uh, I just enjoyed the little link um, of him once a cinematographer now an actor right so, uh, yeah, we, esoteric but it, well I've also gone for a film that Ward Lassie was DP on um, ha, brilliant <laughs> great minds and all that great minds and all that although thankfully it wasn't the loneliness and long distance drama um, it was a film you mentioned though and the film we've gone for the 1964 films over the Greek um, partly for the Walter Leslie connection 
and partly also for the fact that it's a film about writers in Greece so how much more on message can you get um, and my second recommendation is um, also taken from that, that wonderful dinner scene with the writers and their partners um, and also Patrick's grandson and it's Patrick's grandson's girlfriend um, who is I can't remember what she's called she's called Anna um, played by Ariane Labed and she was in a great new film called The Lobster from 2015 mm. um, and this is partly an aspirational recommendation on my part because I haven't seen it and I really feel I should you really should so Sam Having yes. wrapped up the um, the before trilogy, yes. Um, so we're going from from the sublime to the the pop, shall we say? No, sublime to the plant sublime. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, we are moving from uh, American indie films uh, to Back to the Future, yes. the classic eighties and nineties uh, pop films. So yes. Oh, I here. I love these films. I feel like I'm, I'm giving off a vibe and I like them. They're brilliant they films, um, but they are a very different sort of film to the before trilogy. Mm. So next week's episode, we're back here with Back to the Future One. Uh, Till then, you can find both of us on Twitter at British Podcast. You find just me at Life underscore Academic, and you find just me at Rob Kaiju. And we will see you next week. Bye. The Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr.